Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to Stephen Bush and George Eaton about the fiscal charter, whatever that is, and a very stormy meeting of the PLP. Then Anna Leskovitz talks to Kate Mossman about her blockbusting interview with Terence Trent Darby, who says he died when he was 27. It's been another turbulent week for Labour, with a reversal by John McDonnell on whether or not they would vote in favour of Osborne's fiscal responsibility charter. I'm joined by Stephen Bush, our Staggers editor, and our politics editor, George Eaton, to explain exactly what's going on. Stephen, let's start with the fiscal responsibility charter. In words of, I was going to say words of one syllable, but maybe like two syllables or less, can you explain the various kind of reversals that they've been through and, and really what the kind of tactical ideas behind them were? So the fiscal charter is a statutory instrument, so it's passed through the Commons, which means that the government is not allowed to, in normal times, quote-unquote, not keep an absolute surplus. So that's both a surplus in terms of day-to-day spending, but also in terms of borrowing. Uh, So it's not just how much money... It's basically saying not only will I not go into debt to buy food, it's also saying I won't go into my overdraft to replace a car or to service my mortgage or any sort of other existing debts I might have. And, George, you put floated the idea, which was denied by John McDonnell, Labour Shadow Chancellor, that perhaps they hadn't read the detail of it carefully enough and hadn't kind of got this distinction between running a, a current budget surplus, which I think most people would say is a reasonable aspiration, maybe it's, you know, some economists would say, actually, what's the point of surplus at all, and an overall surplus, are you not allowed to borrow for big infrastructure projects or anything like that? Is that, that's the kind of calculation, but they now say that's not true, right? Yes, so John McDonnell is denying that's the case, but the reason a lot of Labour MPs suspected he hadn't read the charter properly is when um, he was interviewed before the Labour conference and said they were going to vote for the fiscal charter. He also said that he supported borrowing for investment, which the charter effectively outlaws. So there was always that contradiction there. And the question was always, how is it going to be resolved? And and it appeared for a period that um, Labour would, would vote for the charter, but say it's a meaningless charter, therefore our support for it is meaningless and it, 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 we're not going to allow him to cast us as, as deficit deniers. So that seems to be the political logic. But I think there were other forces mot- that motivated the U-turn. Uh, Kezia Dugdale, the Scottish Labour leader, made it very clear to John McDonnell that she thought Labour uh, tactically was wrong to vote in favour of the fiscal charter because it would hand the SNP another chance to outflank them from the left. And say, we're the real anti-austerity party. Exactly that. And there were also Labour backbenchers, such as John Mann, who sits on the Treasury Select Committee, who were prepared to vote against the charter and effectively effectively rebel and who made it clear to, to McDonald that it, w- it would be quite odd for backbenchers that they tend to think of um, as to the right of them 
to be voting against the Charter while they vote for it. And Stephen, it was quite an extraordinary scene in the Commons when John McDonnell said it was embarrassing, and he said it was embarrassing about five times because people were kind of shouting that they had done this U-turn. Was that the right decision, just to front it up and go, I've changed my mind, here's why? No, no, it wasn't. I mean, partly because the problem is he he obviously is not being straight about the reasons for the U-turn. They clearly hadn't read it, because when it came out, and I did a piece going, oh no, well, what they'll do is that it just means that they're going to try and win the argument for a massive tax hike. And I got some pushback on on this. Um, you know, going, oh no, this isn't the case. It's like, oh, well, you haven't read it then. And what they so they would have been in a problem, basically, because they'd already committed that they wouldn't raise the top tax rate above 50p. So they haven't got yeah. a huge, yeah, obvious tax raising instrument. They then couldn't borrow, but also they weren't going to make cuts. So they were left in a situation where actually you couldn't mash all those three bits they together. Would, and- it basically would have meant that they would have had to say we will increase basic rate and higher rate um, of income tax. Except, of, of course, what tax. they would actually say is, we believe we can save $120 billion through cracking down on tax avoidance uh, and tax evasion. And, um, the tax avoidance sofa that has so much money behind it yes, every time. But yeah. they have already retreated a bit from the tax avoidance uh, sofa. sofa <laughs> yeah, because, that's what it's called. Well, because the problem is, is the second you start on the tax avoidance sofa you, and you say, but we also want to invest in you know, high-tech jobs or whatever... Well, some of that avoidance sofa is where companies are given leeway to invest well, companies, so in new I tech. think it was Facebook paid under £5,000 in incorporation tax in, in the UK last year. So you can't really say on one hand, I think this is a brilliant company, this is developing the kind of jobs that we need in our economy, but equally well, I'm also going to go and hit them with a big stick until they cough up a bit more I mean, corporation also the, tax. The interesting thing with Facebook and tax is the way they avoided paying corporation tax is they paid all of their staff a bonus. Um which they then paid tax on. There's an open question about whether or not the net tax gain is... So, because the thing is, there are two questions about taxation. There's the wonkish case about how much money you get in, and there's a moral case. Mm. Should a corporation pay more tax? You know, they, after all, benefit from the schools, the roads, the healthcare, etc., etc. I think that's quite a strong argument. On the other hand, there's the crude calculation of... How much money how did much the money Treasury are we, get in Are we actually you? getting okay. in at, at the end of the story? And then perhaps there's an argument for um, for increasing the amount that you uh, that they they force out. I mean, we do now have this. We do have the you know not just the lowest corporation tax rate in the in the G7, but it is so much lower than any of the others. Then you think there probably is some wiggle room. Before this becomes Stephen's tax half hour, which is. I'm sure will be something we do for another time. I just want to take, George, I want to take you back to the PLP meeting on uh, Tuesday night, which was incredibly fraught, not least because they've got very thin walls and all the journalists can sit outside. And therefore, if anyone starts bellowing particularly loudly, um, it's quite audible. Uh, how It sounded like a shambles. I mean, as you wrote, Ben Bradshaw strode out and said it was a shambles. Emily Thornberry, I think, was telling them, basically saying that stop texting journalists outside. I can see their tweets. They're tweeting mean things about us. Is that a fair reflection of how badly it went? Or is that a kind of, is that once again, the evil mainstream media knocking it? No, that is a fair reflection of how, of how badly it went. In fact, after my report, several MPs said to me, no, no, it's even worse than you described. <laughs> and you had veteran MPs who have been in the Commons for perhaps 30 years and who'd never seen anything like it. They've never seen it this bad. I think the reason it was so fraught, it was because the first meeting since the conference season, so a lot had had happened in the interim and there was a lot of heat they had to let out. So they were they were angry about um, Jeremy Corbyn not being inducted into the Privy Council, allowing the media to take another hit on him over that and cast him as unpatriotic again. 
they were angry about John McDonald's reversal on, on the U-turn. And there was a lot of unrest and suspicion about the launch of a new group called Momentum, which um, is billed as a grassroots movement designed to harness the energy of the Corbyn campaign, but which MPs um, opposed to Jeremy Corbyn fear will be used to deselect them. And they weren't briefed in advance of the launch. So there's a huge amount of, of suspicion about that. All of this came out at the meeting. Um, Stephen, talking about Momentum, it's it's been launched by John Lansman, who is a kind of veteran activist who was in favour of mandatory reselection and deselection uh, in his time. Does that mean that MPs are, are right to be worried? Because it also seems to me that it is not an unreasonable thing that you would have, as you had progress, as you had compass, that you would have, given that this is a, not a dominant faction in the PLP, even though obviously the members were very much into it, that it's not necessarily completely sinister, is it? Um, I mean, I think it can both be reasonable and sinister. Um, there is an open question about whether or not mandatory reselection is a, a good thing. Uh, John Landsman thinks now, thinks then and still thinks now it is. Um, so there are two things that you hear about momentum. One isn't there going to be this movement for change style do-gooding organisation where they go around like lifting up plant pots, which, you know, if they do is lovely and, you yeah, know, that, that is great. But well, the flip side of that is movement for change is existed for five years it has fixed some people's gates but in terms of its stated process pro, yeah stated mm. aim which was to get more people involved in the labor party it has been a catastrophic failure um there were very few movement for changes who signed up to vote in the leadership election and in the two key seats where they did a lot of really worthwhile social stuff great yarmouth and cardiff north labor went backwards on 2010 so there are sort of two possibilities of mem uh, with momentum. Either it's going to do all of this social stuff, in which case, yeah, that's wonderful for the people who benefit for it, but it is pretty pointless for the Labour Party. Or, as seems more likely to me, because when Landsman incorporated the company, which is now Momentum, to keep the campaign data from the campaign so they knew where their supporters were, it's because they thought they would lose, but they wanted to be able to organise for NEC elections, selections elections to the National Policy Forum, all of these things where, you know, power within the party resides. And of course they will uh, they will organise on that basis. I mean, you'd have to be... It would just be such a strange thing not to do. Like, they, they want to move the party towards their bit of politics. So I think if I was a moderate MP, I would be a bit nervous because that is one of the blunt instruments you have, is the ability to change the parliamentary party. Yeah. Um, George, you, you, the conclusion that you kind of come to in your column this week is that Jeremy Corbyn isn't going anyway for all the kind of low-grade derm and strang that there is. But there is some. there are some interesting points. I mean, Stephen's talked about deselection, but about also the way, the kind of legacy that Corbyn and his team want to institute about the leadership campaign, which I'm sure will be an that any rule changes in that will be incredibly contested. There's a sort of, there's a, an excellent statement by um, Ken Livingston that he thinks anyone should be able to get on the ballot with only two nominations in future. Then you've got Frank Field on the other side saying that if anyone gets deselected, they should stand again as an independent. I'm sure some people will keep talking about the fact that, you know, is this a party that can hold together with such disparate elements within it? Yes. I mean, I think it can hold together in, in, in the sense that there won't be a formal split. Um, Labour and Peace have seen that film before. It didn't end well in the 1980s when you had the, the SDP breakaway. Even those who are most critical of Jeremy Corbyn and most opposed to him see themselves as, as tribally Labour. It's their party, they're not, they're not going anywhere. 
and um, certainly I don't think there'll be there'll be any any defections. But the the possibility that that Frankfield floats, I mean, it's not impossible, I suppose, if if someone is deselected, that they they would be tempted to run as as an independent in in those circumstances. I mean, it's not a it's not an impossible scenario. But it's it's interesting that Field and Livingston are both publicly speculating about issues like leadership rule changes and and deselections, which just shows that. Uh, what a, an issue it is it, it is within the party. And certainly in terms of the future of the left, were the leadership rules changed, and, and of course Corbyn could try and could try and attempt that now, it would guarantee that you could have a left winger on, on the ballot. And given the, the political makeup of the membership now, anyone who had Jeremy Corbyn's explicit or implicit endorsement would be in a strong position. Mm. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, in 1981, when Tony Benn ran for the deputy leadership, he got 81% of votes among members, but he lost because they had an electoral college. Eric Keffer, his designated successor, when he ran for the leadership after the 1983 election, got 7% of the vote. Uh, yeah, these things are not as portable. So you think it's a kind of, I mean, that's but that's as the, people that's, think. But um, that's also a kind of question of, of personality, isn't it? Because I think you, that Jeremy Corbyn's got a big personal. People just liked the story of this kind of quiet, mild-mannered guy who'd been, you know, who kind of comes to work on a bicycle, mm. hasn't. I mean, particularly post expenses, quite obviously hasn't trousered huge kind of amounts of money and is living in high style. There is a possibility, though, isn't it, that another of the 2015 candidates, the kind of Corbynista MPs, could. How, you know, they have got some very compelling stories among some of them. They, they, yeah, I mean, I think... They could recreate that magic again. My, my instinct is that what will happen is either Jeremy Corbyn or his chosen successor will lead Labour into the 2020 election. However, my growing sense is that Jeremy himself will decide he wants to lead Labour into the 2020 election. One of the interesting things that happened in the reshuffle is there is not an obvious successor to Corbyn from the Corbyn flank, who he could pass on to. One of the reasons why I don't think there'll be this rule change to allow anyone onto the ballot is then he becomes less irreplaceable to... Immediately. Yeah, immediately, to the to the left of the Labour Party. And there are lots of people in the membership who I think are more sympathetic to Corbyn than they are to the left in general within, within Labour. I think that that's but the one that comes across... I think there are lots of across... lefties who actually yeah. would prefer... You know, there are, there are left-wing MPs in the Parliamentary Party who think Clive Lewis is a better media performer, who would you know, prefer to have someone like that. Well, and I think it's a big think thing he'll... about people wanting to kind of get somebody who is, who is fresh, because actually one of the things that's been kind of exhausting for Corbyn is defending 30 years of, of previous public statements whereas if you are somebody who is kind of a clean skin that gives you a, a, a huge advantage I guess yeah. it's SNP conference this weekend so we'll be talking a bit about that next week until then thank you very much to Stephen and George Hi I'm Caroline and I'm Anna and we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast Seriously this week we talk about the absolute farce that is Downton Abbey so if you'd like to join us as we rant and rave please do you can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY or on iTunes or any podcatcher of your choice. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, 
I'm Anna Leskovich and I'm here with Kate Mossman who last week interviewed Terence Trent Darby for the magazine. Terence now calls himself Sananda Matreya and one of the conditions of your interview was that you weren't to bring up his old name, is that right? Yeah, it's a painful memory basically. He renamed himself officially in 2001 but he started to call himself Sananda after a series of dreams in the mid-1990s. Well I think that detail sort of characterises what the interview's like so if you haven't read it already you must. But Kate so you were just saying off air everyone of a certain age knows about Terence Trent Darby but for anyone out there who doesn't can you just explain a bit about who he is? He was a strange figure and I was a child when his big record came out in 1987. He was just in the consciousness. He was so heavily promoted by his record label that in the course of doing this article I realised that he, he, was, he was demanding cover interviews before he'd even had a record out. There was a tremendous push from his, his label at the point of they just thought he was the perfect rock star. And the funny thing about it was that the music journalists went mad for him as well because he was beautiful. He looked like Jimi Hendrix. He sounded like Sam Cooke. He danced like James Brown. He was bringing this kind of very slick, sort of super polished soul in at the end of the 80s. He also had a bit of Prince in him. He was mentored by Prince. He was in love with Michael Jackson. He was just this perfect figure. And his his first record sold apparently a million copies in three days. He was 25 years old. And this piece had a million views in three days. (laughs) This piece had a million views in three days. The history repeats itself. Yes, there is a sense of there's only one way to go but down with that, isn't there? Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully not for you. Um, So what happened? How did that downward spiral come about? He claimed famously that his first album was going to be bigger than Sgt Pepper and he claimed that he was a genius. And now he said these things, yes, they were all there, they're all there in print, but he was sort of goaded to say them by the press and he was, he'd studied journalism for a year at the University of Florida. He was a very bright young man, he'd got a scholarship to Florida University. He knew how the press worked and he also had been stationed in near Frankfurt with Elvis Presley's old regiment when he was in the army And all the time he was living in Germany, he devoured the NME and Melody Maker. And he knew that the British rock hacks, who were kind of a notoriously arch bunch in the 1970s and 80s, held a lot of power. He knew that they found American artists boring to interview. And he explained this to me, and he's completely right about this. He said, American artists, they thank their mum, they thank Jesus, and they say every new record is their best one yet. (laughs) And it's true that it's very difficult to get a real interview out of an American artist because there's a kind of veneer of media training a very kind of polite process they're always blessed by their experience they're blessed right. by their career and he set out to be different basically so he threw these lines at the press that he knew were going to make headlines mm-hmm. like I am a genius point effing blank he said when he was 25 and every single piece that was written about him was filled with speculation about the fact he could only go down so it was strange he created a kind of monster yeah that's funny though because I feel like a lot of artists that are really famous now like the obvious comparison is obviously Kanye West say things like that all the time and it doesn't seem to be an, a bad omen he was completely ahead of his time in that respect it, Lady Gaga said it she, mm. she's, she said I am famous you just haven't heard of me yet and, and everyone loved it in 2009 2010 because the era that Terrence St. Darby came out with was was over like we, we had no there was no money in the industry anymore there was no grand kind of characters everyone was much more transparent they're all on Twitter you can see what they're having for breakfast they're not selling that many records so when someone like Kanye or 
Gaga comes along and says, I am a genius, you're going to, you know, I'm the biggest thing since whatever. We love that now. But back at the, in the late 80s, it wasn't actually particularly fashionable. It was quite a self-conscious era. This was the yuppie era, you know. Mm-hmm. He was selling to a yuppie audience. And it was not particularly cool what he was doing. And he just got carried away with it, really. And I think it, it was just a, a the, the real reason that his career failed was that his second record, um, he demanded that he produce it, master it, engineer it himself. And he didn't have any singles on it. It was not mm. a commercial thing. And um, it sold 300,000 copies when his first one sold 9 million. And he just gradually petered out after that. He didn't disappear, but he thinks he disappeared, so... So what was it like to talk to him about that? I mean, it, presumably it must have been quite difficult to get him to speak about why his career collapsed in that sense. How willing was he to speak with you about it? I thought it was going to be difficult, but he was he hadn't done a face-to-face interview for by the sounds of it quite a long time. He was very nervous, but once he started talking, he kind of just he did have this kind of automatic quality to his speech. And he was full of the most bizarre creative reasons for his career failure. You know, Michael Jackson was responsible. There were death threats on him. There were debates in the House of Lords about why his career had to be tanked. He didn't really talk about Sananda Maitreya, the happy creative man living in Milan with two kids writing records. He talked about the past the whole time. So he was an amazing contradiction between somebody who claimed they didn't want the past dredging up, they didn't even want their old name mentioned, and somebody who, for two and a half hours, did nothing Mm. but talk about the era. Picking a scab, isn't it? Yes, completely. completely. (laughs) It was quite a a sort of sad experience in a strange kind of way to doing the interview how self-aware do you think he is he's or he was always a self mythologist and he made his story his story was already fascinating an army boy you know could have gone professional as a boxer all sorts of things but he made his story even more apocryphal and amazing than it actually was and one of the problems with that is if you tell lots of different versions of your story to lots of different journalists you sort of lose track of who you've told what and his I, I got a very strong sense that he does believe a lot of the things that he claimed to have happened to him especially the kind of conspiracies against him and stuff I was never any moment thinking that this guy is just turning it on for the press partly because there was something so sort of sad in the way that he spoke and an urgency about it as well it just that was not it wasn't someone acting Um, (laughs) it was a very strange thing I think as well the thing that struck me is that these people are so young when they get you know when I was 25 years old I didn't even have a, a shred of a notion what I wanted to do with my career I didn't have half the social skills I have now he was that age when he took off Eric Clapton was about 19 or 20 when people realized that he was a genius Paul McCartney was only 28 when he was working on Abbey Road I mean it's almost impossible to believe that but that the Beatles when they were working on their last record were still in their 20s and the amount of stuff that you have to kind of take on emotionally before you're fully formed I I just couldn't I don't know how they they did it and I think this his story is an example of somebody who got carried away with that and suffered the consequences of the hype that was put on him by the press by his own label and by himself ultimately Kate what do you think about some of those albums looking back like is the first one as good as it seemed at the time are the other ones as bad as they seemed at the time well the funny thing is yeah I listened back to this the famous second album that that mm-hmm. tanked and no I mean it would fly now because we don't expect to send sell records anymore so I think there's a good comparison with someone like Janelle Monet, for instance mm-hmm. who I think is fantastic she her first record um was a huge two-sided concept album about robots and it had one or two amazing songs in it and also lots of kind of strange musical interludes and you you listen to that and 
in whenever that came out, 2010, everyone was like, oh, this girl's a genius. So things have changed. Back in the days when records were still selling in their millions, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't commercial. So I think that there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And if you listen to what he's doing now, he releases loads of records nowadays. There's a huge ambition there. There's a great knowledge of how to write a really good tune. His voice is good. But they're also kind of batty. They're all over the place. <laughs> there's no producer, there's no editor, and there's no A&R team at all trying to sort of shape him into any commercial kind of state. Yeah, I think that's in a way what you want from a pop star nowadays. You want these big egos who are fairly controlling and stuff. Do you think if, you know, the story of Terence Trent Darby had happened 20 years later, it would have been a different story? I think you're right. And I also think he could have possibly happened a bit earlier, you know, mm. in the days of the, the golden gods of the early 1970s, the, the Rolling Stone era that he was um, in love with. He would have, his proclamations would have gone down well. And it was funny, I actually asked him in the interview, I said, did you ever feel like you were born too early or too late and he actually winced his eyes kind of widened and I thought this is painful this is actually something he's thought about before yes if only I was coming out now or yes if only I'd come out then who knows whether that that whether that's true but it was definitely something that he's thought about and I think it's a you know who knows I mean maybe his music will get rediscovered again there's a lot of people talking about it in the moment yeah but, definitely um... yeah maybe your piece will reignite a fire kate thanks so much for talking to me thanks very much you've been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis and produced by anna leskovitz you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on itunes Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.